This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Your radio doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on your radio doctor. Always consult your own physician. Today's program has been pre-recorded. Overcoming great challenges like COVID-19 requires great cooperation. This is Dan Hilferty, CEO of Independence Blue Cross. Most of us never imagined we'd be facing an outbreak of this magnitude. But in the face of this challenge, hospitals, public officials, and business leaders have come together. Through effective cooperation, these leaders are taking steps to keep us safe. Slowing the rate of infection from the virus will help hospitals care for those who need attention most. Remember, stay home. Leave only for essential needs. Stay informed from sources like the CDC or Department of Health. Take a break from watching the news. Stay well, exercise, and practice self-care to make sure you're physically and mentally fit. In our great region, we have a tradition of caring for each other and cooperating to get things done. We'll do it again now. For more, visit ibx.com slash COVID-19. Together, we will beat COVID-19. Talk Radio 1210, WPHT, WPHT, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. Radio.com station. From the Malamud and Associates Law Studios, it's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Sunday morning at 10. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Presented exclusively by Independent. Blue Cross. That is a very, very robust, vigorous achu sneeze. That's what that is. And that's not what we're talking about. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. And good morning, and welcome to your radio doctor. Thank you for joining us on this fine Sunday. I'm your host, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, with lots of important information to share with you today. Our topic, COVID-19 and pregnancy. A very special thank you to our exclusive sponsor, Independence Blue Cross. We have two very special guests today, Ms. Rosemary Connors. You'll recognize her voice as the star news anchor for NBC10. And then we're joined by Dr. Christopher Zahn from the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. And of course, we'll close with your real champions of the week. So let's begin. Rosemary Connors is a highly respected TV anchor and reporter for NBC10, where you can see her on Monday through Friday at 11 a.m. and again each afternoon. She's a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania, go Quakers, and she's a graduate of Temple Law School and a six-time Emmy winner. But her favorite role is a fairly new one. As of April 5th, Rosemary is a new mother. Congratulations and welcome, Rosemary. Thank you, Dr. Ritchie. I really appreciate it. Yes, you're right. My new role as a a mom and just celebrated my first Mother's Day. Oh, and congratulations. Nothing more exciting. We send our love to baby Benjamin. Happy (laughs) six weeks, six weeks old today. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. And uh, and. Uh, we're still trying to navigate daytime naps, <laughs> oh, well. but, but he's doing well at night, so I, I can't complain. I think if you give him more candy and chocolate milk, he'll sleep better. That's just my <laughs> recipe, and I'm a doctor, you're, you're, so you know it's good. I was going to say, your advice, your, 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 your advice, and you're the pro. You're the expert. <laughs> so when, when COVID first surfaced in the news, how far along were you in your pregnancy? 
I was getting toward the end. So I was probably like 35 weeks, 36 weeks. And obviously we were covering it at NBC 10 and exactly. and like the rest, right. And like the rest of the country uh, trying to make sense of what this new virus was. And as we know, initially the concern was really for the elderly people who were immunocompromised. And there wasn't a whole lot of research about people who were pregnant um, or babies. So I, Personally, I didn't feel terribly concerned, at least at the outset, but obviously as time has gone on, and I would say even more so since I've given birth, um, I, I, it's, I think about it day and night as it affects my, my newborn son. I mean, just today, um, new reports out about this uh, pediatric inflammatory syndrome and what that, what that may look like. And, and Dr. Ritchie, as you and I um, have spoken about it, uh, we're all learning this as as this virus is unfolding. Right. Uh, hence the name novel coronavirus. Right. And, mm-hmm. and the other thing, you're right. When it first started to surface in, say, January, we think, oh, gosh, there's poor people over in China and in Europe. And then there was just one case in Delaware County, one in Wayne County. And we thought, gosh, that's unfortunate. Who knew mm-hmm. it would just be a wave of contagious virus? It's terrifying, really. Um, Rosemary, for our listeners, I have to share this if you don't mind. Rosemary is a twin, and her mm-hmm. twin brother has twin girls. Mm-hmm. Rosemary's mother's brother and sister were twins, and her grandfather mm-hmm. had twin sisters. So, Rosemary, you know, fraternal twins are hereditary. Maybe next time. <laughs> it's funny. My husband, um, his father is a fraternal twin. And, oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yes. And and there's another set of twins in his father's family. So we, when when we were waiting to find out if, you know, if we were having a boy, if we were having a girl, I said, they might tell us we're having twins as far as we know. But nope, just, just one, which uh, now that he's here, it, that's plenty. Oh, or two times two is four. I mean, you know, let's be open-minded here. So when COVID became more of a reality, what questions did you have for your doctor? Well, I mean, I think as I started, so what's interesting is I was actually sent to work from home pretty early on in comparison to generally speaking, the rest of the population. And now everybody's working from home and certainly my colleagues who are even broadcasting from home. Um, my employers, you know, thankfully, uh, said, you know what, because we don't know what the effect could be and, and you're, you're pregnant and obviously that, um, you know, that's something we're, we're paying close attention to. We want to make sure that you're safe. You should start working from home. So that was, that was around like third week, 36, week 37. And then obviously things started to ramp up. As I got closer to my due date, the question became, what are the hospitals going to look like? This was late March, early April. As we said, he was born April 5th. So this was around the time that New York's hospitals were flooded. And Pennsylvania's and Philadelphia's were not, but obviously there were COVID cases in every city hospital. Um, I delivered at Pennsylvania Hospital, Ethan Spruce, in, in Philadelphia. And um, the question was, what will our, no, who knows what our hospitals will look like? Nobody can predict, even today, no one can predict what tomorrow's going to look like, uh, just generally speaking with this virus, what next week, next month. So that was a concern. And something that came up in my discussion with um, my healthcare providers uh, through Penn Medicine was that we, you know, maybe we wanted to look at induction. If the baby didn't come by a certain time, would this be something worth considering? For a couple of reasons. As you know, Dr. Ritchie, um, if you wait 
if you if you go past your due date, you have to continue to be monitored in the doctor's office. So as we're all trying to stay at home, and certainly I was trying to stay, I, and that's all I did. I, I I feel like I've been in my house for you know two to three months now. Um, okay, do I really want to expose myself? Every time I'm out and about going to the doctor's office, obviously they were limiting appointments at that time. But even so, you're getting in your car, you're driving, you're parking, you're getting out, you're walking into a public facility, even if it is limited to other people. So that was something we we talked about. And actually, I, I was scheduled to be induced right at 40 weeks, which would have been April 7th. Um, and in the week leading up to that, I, I had a long conversation with my OBGYN and we decided, you know what, why don't we, why don't we give it a full week? We'll schedule it for week 40, you know, that, that, that due date. And we'll, we'll see what, we'll see if you decides to show up before then. Um, so in those days leading up to it, I did a lot of walking around my neighborhood, <laughs> um, hoping that, that I, I might be able to, to, to have a little baby Ben sooner than the induction date. And that is what happened. Um, but, you know, there were concerns, obviously, even then, of going into the hospital, wearing masks, um, and and making sure that we were protected and okay. Obviously, the the, the staff um, at Pennsylvania Hospital, which, you know, certainly made us feel safe, and the doctors were every, everybody was wearing masks, even the people bringing, you know, once we delivered the baby, even people bringing in food into your room. Every, everybody obviously had masks on. Um, but after we left the hospital, I mean, think about it. For, for anybody who can remember having a newborn in normal times, not in a pandemic, you have your in-laws come over. Maybe you have your parents over or friends and family. As we say, it takes a village to, to raise a child. So you, you have that immediate help. Um, and because I'm from the area, I grew up right outside the city. All of my family is close, but we couldn't have anybody over. We uh-huh. felt like my husband and I felt like we've been in a public place, a hospital that we know they're taking all of the precautions. We've been taking precautions, but nobody, because it's a novel vi- virus, no one, no one can can right. predict who has it. Except we all know it's, it's highly contagious. So sure. we felt like we had to truly quarantine and not, you know, even see anybody from a distance for a solid two weeks. Right. Well, I think that was very thoughtful because people don't always think that way. And you're saying, gosh, I have uh, my parents and your husband's parents that were really excited to see this baby. And I think it was really smart and thoughtful to say we're going to quarantine ourselves having come out of a hospital. And but it's still tough. I mean, it's your first baby and you'd Mm -hmm. love to have your family and friends come and just goo goo gaga all over him, which they (laughs) will in time. And a little way from the driveway is good for now, seeing the baby Mm -hmm. from afar. And I know his cousins can't wait to see him. And I know you said you have a, a family Zoom every Sunday night, but I have to share with our listeners one last thing. You followed in your mother's and grandmother's footsteps. This is so beautiful for people to hear. Your grandmother was a journalist, and after age 40, went to Villanova Law School in the early 60s. What a, you know, changer. And then Mm -hmm. your mother was also a journalist. She covered the Stanley Cup when it was won in New York, early days of HIV in New York. She wrote a book, and then she was a senior editor for the Philadelphia Inquirer. Quite the impressive heritage, Rosemary. Yeah, well, right. you know, it, it's funny, Dr. Richie, you'll appreciate this. When I started out in college, I, I thought I I might go into the field of medicine, might become a doctor. No, 
<laughs> well, I was not afraid. It, it was uh, I got through freshman year labs or barely got through them and thought, you know what? Maybe I should I should look a little closer to home and uh, and, and follow in uh, in what I know. Well, wow. so. Philadelphia is quite lucky that you found your path. So I'm going to say congratulations again. Enjoy this precious time at home with your new baby. Just sit and stare at him. And uh, I guess now your husband will never be late again now that he's Big Ben. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> I'm glad he speaks English. Well, thank you, Rosemary Connors, news anchor from NBC10. We'll thank take a you short so much, break. Dr. Oh, you're welcome. Congratulations. We'll be back in a moment with more on COVID-19 and pregnancy. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.com. Welcome back. This is Dr. Marianne Ritchie, and I am Your Radio Doctor. I'm very pleased to welcome our next guest, from the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, Dr. Christopher Zahn is the Vice President of Practice Activities with a long and distinguished career in his field. Dr. Zahn is a retired Air Force officer. Thank you for your service. He was a professor and chair of OBGYN at the Uniformed Services University of Health Sciences. He practiced at Walter Reed and has many other accolades listed on our website. So for women who are currently pregnant or will be soon or are close to delivery, this will be a very helpful session with Dr. Zahn as we discuss many topics concerning pregnancy and COVID-19. Welcome, Chris, and thank you once again for joining us. Thanks very much, Marianne. Really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you and to be part of this uh, program. Thank you. Well, and I'd love to start by saying that I've read your website. For our listeners, that's ACOG.org. ACOG.org, American College of OBGYN. Great resource for patients. So, Chris, in terms of COVID 19, are pregnant women at increased risk for contracting COVID? And if they do uh, become positive, are they at risk for more severe cases? Well, it's a great question, Marianne. And based on the information that we have, granted that this is an evolving area and there's new information coming out, what seems like daily. But again, based on the information that we have, it does not appear that pregnant women are at increased risk of severe illness or other adverse outcomes compared to non-pregnant women. Uh, This is a little unusual in that pregnancy in and of itself does cause changes to the immune system. And historically, other viral illnesses and other infections uh, at times, not all certainly, but at times, uh, pregnant women have been at increased risk. Uh, but that has not been seen in, with coronavirus. Uh, again, the data is emerging, but the information we have both from overseas experience as well as the U.S. experience uh, suggests that pregnant women uh, compared to non-pregnant women are not at increased risk. Uh, I do think it is important to highlight that this, uh, these are pregnant women without other significant illnesses. Uh, we certainly recognize that for non-pregnant patients, those with comorbidities, for example, other uh, coexisting illnesses such as asthma, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, those patients are at increased risk. Uh, we consider those same uh, coexisting illnesses to put pregnant women at increased risk as well. We don't actually have the data 
in pregnant women with those other illnesses to know that they are at increased risk. But uh, we do make the assumption that, similar to non-pregnant patients, that if a pregnant woman has some of those other uh, additional illnesses, that she may be at increased risk as well and should be uh, treated accordingly. Sure. So just like people in the general population, their risk is going to be increased if they do have the, the conditions you mentioned, hypertension, diabetes, if they're immunocompromised. And so I guess that would lead us to take from the data we have so far, as we keep saying, that most infected mothers recover without having to go with an early delivery, right, so far? Right, that's Right. That's uh, based on, again, what we know. There are some uh, small reports of a potentially increased risk of preterm delivery in women with COVID, but that has only been seen primarily in women who had severe illness or Mm -hmm. were in the intensive care unit. Uh, So we don't actually know if there were other factors that are known risk factors for preterm delivery, if those were also present. So based on what we know, it doesn't appear at this point that having a COVID infection in and of itself increases the risk of preterm delivery. Thank goodness. And and to date, no conclusive evidence that there's transmission from mother to baby while she's carrying the baby. Isn't that right? Right. Again, based on everything that we have thus far, there's no uh, reliable evidence uh, or any studies that have shown the vertical transmission, uh, meaning that a woman, if she's infected, can she pass the infection through the placenta uh, to the fetus? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the risk really for the transmission between the mom and the baby is actually concerned after delivery uh, for a mother who is infected with COVID-19 because of the respiratory secretions. Uh, could she transmit the virus via those secretions to the, the newborn? Uh, and that is clearly a, a potential risk. And there are recommendations for how to potentially avoid those situations uh, after birth for mm-hmm. an infected mom and the baby. Well, I think one of the other things that we talked about the other day when we chatted about our talking points was that for pregnant women with other children, I know that you want them to exercise caution, especially since their children may have mild or no symptoms at all. So the CDC recommends that children not have play dates with children from other households, keep them six feet apart from other children and other people, cover their faces as well. And the point we want to drive home is, for vaccination, so important for the mom, of course, make sure her vaccines are up to date. And the children, we were talking, it's in the news. One of the concerns is what will happen after uh, the next several months? People are afraid to go for doctor routine visits and hospital uh, ER visits. And you worry that children aren't getting their vaccinations and come school in September. What will that look like? Right. That's an absolutely such an important point. Um, you know, certainly we, and we acknowledge and, you know, I, I think anyone who's listening who is a parent and I'm a parent trying to maintain especially small children six feet apart. You know, that that's pretty challenging. Good luck. Uh, so yeah. Trying to. Yeah. Trying to adhere to some of those recommendations are certainly challenging. Uh, but ideally, uh, we do know that the physical separation and using other things like certainly 
frequent hand washing, uh, the potential use of cloth masks, certainly when, as recommended by the CDC, when people are in, in closer contact, that those things can be helpful. But again, we certainly recognize uh, trying to adhere to those recommendations in the home environment, particularly with small children, can be pretty challenging. But the vaccine issue is absolutely critical. We at ACOG certainly uh, highly recommend to stay with the vaccine schedules that are that are supposed to be given in pregnancy. Uh, and then the same thing for the childhood vaccinations. And the CDC, as well as the American Academy of Pediatrics, have significant concerns about declining vaccination rates uh, for children with a number of these diseases that are really preventable, such as measles, mumps, rubella, that with uh, the declining vaccination rates, uh, whooping cough is, a, is another significant disease, that there could be a significant increase in these uh, diseases over the next several months to several years uh, because these vaccinations are, are not given. Sure. Uh, certainly, certainly for the for the vaccines for the mom during pregnancy a number of practices are coming up with innovative ways to try to get those vaccines uh, to the mom uh, during pregnancy and certainly pediatric practices and hospitals are, are coming up with innovative ways to uh, try to optimize the ability for the kids to get the recommended vaccines as well. Yeah. We have about one minute left in this segment, Chris. Any special recommendations for healthcare workers uh, exposure to COVID if they're pregnant? Uh, yes, yeah, so, so we certainly recognize that, you know, this is a stressful and anxiety-provoking time for everyone, period, much less healthcare workers who are on the front lines. And there's a lot of concern about should there be uh, additional precautions taken for pregnant healthcare workers. But because of the same risk, basically, between pregnant and non-pregnant uh, uh, patients, you know, for pregnant healthcare workers, certainly following infection control guidelines from the CDC and a number of organizations using the appropriate pers- uh, protective equipment uh, is is critically important. Uh, but in general, pregnant patients can continue to work uh, again, trying to adhere to those infection control guidelines. Uh, at ACOG, we do certainly recognize that individual employers and, for that matter, hospital systems for the pregnant health care workers may modify work schedules to try to reduce uh, pregnant patients' risk of exposure. Uh, we actually have in our recommendations that it's uh, reasonable to consider possibly removing a health care worker from a high-exposure environment once they reach 37 weeks or at least anticipated two weeks before delivery. Uh, with the rationale being that if the patient, particularly if she can self-isolate or self-quarantine, then she reduces her risk of getting infected and therefore reduces the risk of potentially the baby being infected or the other health care workers involved in her care uh, would actually get infected as well. Good point. So many aspects to consider. Chris, we're going to take a little break and we'll be right back with more on COVID in pregnancy. All right, thank you. Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross, can be enjoyed on Radio.com. Listen to the show at your convenience. Go to Radio.com and in the search bar type in Your Radio Doctor. It's health education on demand. 
and welcome back. Thanks to our exclusive sponsor, Independence Blue Cross. We're here discussing COVID and pregnancy with our guest, Dr. Christopher Zahn from the American College of OBGYN. So Chris, with fever in general, some people don't mount a fever with COVID, uh, but if a pregnant woman has fever for any reason, bronchitis, bladder infection in the first trimester, um, your concern is congenital anomalies, especially, and miscarriages. So Tylenol is safe. That's the message for people who do get a fever should they become ill with COVID or, or any um, reason. But the other point to make is that the clinical picture, complications of heart disease or shock or any of those more severe symptoms are similar to non-pregnant patients. Right, that that's true. And uh, fortunately, the rate of people, uh, pregnant women, uh, is, again, no higher. The rate of severe illness is, is no higher. And fortunately, that rate is uh, very low, roughly in the 4% range, uh, based on the information that we have. Uh, certainly higher than other infectious diseases. And obviously, we would all like a much lower rate. We'd actually like a zero rate. Uh, but sure. we know that the vast majority of women have mild mild uh, symptoms and uh, can usually do very well just with home management at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, fever is one of the presenting uh, symptoms. One of the most, when the disease was first being described, uh, that was probably the most common symptom. We do know now that there are other symptoms and fever doesn't have to be present. Uh, but we also we do know that hyperthermia uh, setting of, of prolonged fever is potentially a risk for some anomalies. But uh, that would be uh, a prolonged, very significantly elevated temperature, typically not the pattern seen with most infectious uh, conditions, and Tylenol is safe. Mm-hmm. And I have prepared uh, a few kind of quick ask and answer so that we can get lots of the typical questions patients might ask you. To date, COVID is not an indication to decide to do a C-section. No, no, and that, that's a great question and, and one that patients have asked us as well. So I think the two caveats around COVID and delivery is, number one, it is not a reason to deliver early. So the timing of delivery is based on obstetric reasons to do so, not because of the presence of COVID. And number two, it's not an indication for cesarean delivery. Mm -hmm. Uh, So women can still have vaginal deliveries. uh, And the indication for cesarean delivery would be based on the the usual, basically, indications for cesarean delivery, not because of COVID. Mm-hmm. And everything that's been tested, amniotic fluid, vaginal uh, swabs, every part of delivery and the woman's uh, body placenta, COVID has not been found in any of those areas. So, again, it, it doesn't speak of safer if you uh, go with C-section. So just a couple quick questions. Um, I'm sure that you're trying to change the time of antenatal or prenatal visits and screening tests. So maybe you'd combine blood studies with an ultrasound into one visit, and you probably restrict visitors when a patient comes in for prenatal visits. Um, yeah, there, there's uh, quite a bit. There's no uh, standard or universal approach to how people have handled reducing visits. Uh, we, we do know that act, reducing visits has been a common strategy for all sorts of health care, whether it's related to pregnancy, gynecology, primary care, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, so 
practices and hospital systems have come up with innovative and novel ways to accomplish prenatal care, but with a reduced number of visits. And, and again, there's no standard. There's uh, no sort of overarching guidance that says you won't, during this crisis, you only need to have eight prenatal visits compared to the normal, roughly 13 or 14. Right. Uh, so again, it's using a combination of in-person visits when needed, uh, using telehealth. Telehealth has certainly right. uh, been significantly uh, increased. The use of telehealth has significantly increased uh, mm-hmm. with the crisis because a, a number of the, the, the discussions that occur during prenatal visits can occur via telehealth, uh, con- condensing the visits so that some of the things that might be done over a couple of different visits, if possible and appropriate from a timing perspective, they could be done at one visit instead of two, potentially. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, maybe combining some labs and ultrasound into one visit. So. Uh, yeah, there's really been a lot of, again, innovative ways to try to deliver prenatal care. I think the interesting thing is how much of this will be maintained uh, once we are past the crisis, because a number sure. of these uh, really great innovations to address care during the crisis uh, might be able to continue as, as long as uh, they were mm-hmm. safe, effective, and well-received by the patients. Yes. And thank goodness so far the rate of miscarriage doesn't appear to be increased, although the data is limited. But I I think the messages that you wanted to bring home were, number one, the hospital is still the safest place to give birth. And if you are COVID positive and you know that, you're going to notify the delivery unit when you're on your way to the hospital because they might have a different entrance and they're going to protect you and other uh, patients. And I guess different hospitals have ways of screening patients as they enter. They ask about symptoms, maybe take your temperature or ask about exposure. And the last thing we wanted to talk about was that Mm -hmm. during labor, when a woman is pushing, sometimes it can cause defecation. And that stool, we know in many patients, contains virus. We're just not sure if it's infectious, so we're going to act as though it is. Right. We we, The CDC has... uh, demonstrated or has identified data that suggests that the virus can be present in, in fecal matter, but it does, there is no evidence at this point that it's infectious. Uh, so there would be no difference or no additional precautions for vaginal delivery um, based on that potential exposure. Mm-hmm. Are women being asked to wear masks uh, during delivery, the, the, uh, the, the moms? Uh, that's a that's a great question, and there are definitely varying opinions on that. You know, certainly patients who are symptomatic uh, when they come into the facility, many facilities will have the patient wear a mask, and there are some practices where it's recommended that the patient wears a mask for the entire pregnancy, labor, and delivery experience, including while she's pushing. But there's actually some. Uh, data that suggests that wearing a mask actually increases the risk of droplet exposure, the respiratory droplets, and that it's actually counterproductive. Hmm. Uh, so it's it's so the more important thing is that the people involved in the care of the patient use the appropriate protective equipment and not to mask the patient to try to reduce that risk. That's really interesting because the mom's working harder with the mask and maybe would. Uh... That's interesting. So the couple of things we really want to cover before we move on are if the mom is COVID positive, is she separated from the baby? Um, I know that the risk is probably greater after delivery um, 
because as you say, no intrauterine transmission from mom to baby has been documented. And you think maybe somebody who holds a baby or a caregiver might, uh, there was a report of one or two newborns that were positive that may have been after the baby was born. And would you separate the mom and baby? Yeah, that's, that's another great question. It's a controversial area, and it's, it's a real challenge. We certainly recognize, and a number of authorities uh, do, that there are obviously significant benefits to that close contact immediately after uh, delivery with skin-to-skin contact, initiation of breastfeeding, bonding. Uh, again, there are some really important benefits to that. But and for an infected mom, there is the risk of the respiratory secretions and transmission of the baby and infecting the baby. Uh, we don't really know what that rate of infection is for a newborn, uh, how frequent that is. Based on what we know, it does appear to be pretty rare. But again, this is still an evolving area. So it really comes down to a decision of the benefits of bonding versus the risk of that potential transmission. Uh, And the recommendations are are really, this is really an important aspect where it's a discussion between the clinician and the patient and a shared decision-making process to do what is most comfortable in in the patient's mind, uh, realizing that there are benefits and risks. And uh, if separation is done, there are recommendations for doing that. If separation is not possible or the patient desires not to do that, there are recommendations to try to reduce the risk uh, for the for the baby's exposure so the mom could wear a mask or, or covering frequent hand washing if she's breastfeeding to use to wash whether she's using a pump or the breast to make sure she hand washes, washes all the equipment related to breastfeeding. Uh, one consideration could be that uh, when she's not holding the baby or breastfeeding, that there's six feet of separation between the baby, uh, the baby's crib, and where the mom is. So there, there is some guidance about how to try to address the uh, separation issue. But it really is not. It's not the case of the mom and baby should never be separated, and that's not a case where they should always be separated. It really is a, a discussion between the clinicians and the and the mom yeah. and obviously the nursing team right. and doing what, what they feel is best for their yeah. particular situation. So you've laced in my last question. We have about a minute about nursing. It's not known if the virus can be transferred through the nursing milk and breastfeeding. So again, maybe the mom could express her milk and let somebody else feed the baby if she has the luxury of help. Um, And of course, the mom should wear a mask, the caregiver should wear a mask. And I know that you're working hard to, if it's safe, discharge patients maybe one day if they have a vaginal delivery or maximum two days after a C-section. You know, the other important area where telehealth is really going to help, Chris, that you talked about is postpartum depression. Um, We have about a minute and we can come back after the break, but it's quite the process for a woman who's just had a baby coming back, getting screened, getting referral. You're already depressed. You're bringing a crying baby to the office and, and many just don't show up. Telehealth will make a big difference for these women who can talk to their doctor from home and you'll have better compliance. Um, maybe we'll take a little break now and come back to that in a few minutes. Sounds great. Thank you. Thank you. Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie is exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. 
Dr. Marianne will return, but first, a medical message from one of our partners. So, Chris, in our final couple of minutes, a young couple wants to start planning a family. Is it safe for them to move forward with their plan, or should they wait for a COVID treatment or vaccine? What do you have to say about that? Uh, well, again, Marianne, you're asking a lot of really great questions. Uh, this one doesn't have a really clear answer, though, unfortunately, and that this is really much more about the couple and thinking about the pros and cons. So I think the, as we mentioned before, pregnant patients are not at increased risk compared to non-pregnant patients. That said, we also acknowledge there is a small risk of severe illness. A small percentage of these patients will get severely ill, will be admitted to the ICU. Uh, So there are certainly risks uh, associated with potentially being pregnant, just like there would be the risks if if they were not pregnant. Um, So, we know, one could certainly view, well, maybe it's safer to wait. Uh, I think the challenge with the vaccines is we don't know how long it's going to take till the vaccine is developed and as well as even when it is developed, how widespread uh, the availability will be. So, I mean, that could be a couple of years. That could be four or five years. So can the couple really postpone their pregnancy planning that long, particularly if they've had trouble getting pregnant before or depending on the couple age, particularly the mom where, right. you know, she might be approaching ages where fertility starts to decline and how long can wait. So there's a number of factors that, that need to, or that are at play. And it really is going to depend on a discussion with the clinician, uh, trying to really look at the pros and cons of waiting versus moving forward and ultimately mm-hmm. uh, making the decision for themselves. Well, and I think even in this short time, we've learned so much and listening to you, all these good minds are coming together to make it as safe as possible. So, and the last thing I want to share with our listeners is that doctors and pregnant patients themselves uh, who have known COVID or suspected COVID can submit information about symptoms, signs in their, uh, their course to registries. Um, tell us a little bit about that and I'll tell people how they can do that. All right. Thank you, Aaron. Yeah, registries are, are critical with this. A registry is basically a large database uh, and there are several that are just recently developed or still in development. Probably one of the largest and one of the earliest to be established is called Priority, and it's spelled Priority with all capital letters. Uh, it's been established out of the University of California, San Francisco. Uh, and they're a very comprehensive uh, database collecting information on both the mom and the baby. And it's really going to be critical because as this continues to evolve, the more data we can get to help give us more information, give us more evidence to help inform these decisions and modify things moving forward is absolutely critical. Uh, Priority can be, uh, patients can report directly to priority to get themselves enrolled. Uh, Providers certainly can do that as well. Um, and it's pretty easy to find. If someone searches priority with capital letters, it'll pop up. If you search UCSF priority. Uh, so, yeah, this is going to be really important to be able to collect this kind of information. Uh, the other thing to mention about priority is they're actually collaborating internationally. And since we know that the COVID actually was obviously uh, apparent in China and Italy and some other European countries before uh, it hit the U.S., 
uh, that ability to collaborate with the additional experience from overseas will just grow this database much more quickly. Well, thank you, Dr. Chrisan, for all your time and helpful information. For those who want to submit information, ACOG.org, A-C-O-G.org. Thank you, Chris. Stay well. Thanks very much, Marianne. I really appreciate the time, and you stay well as well, as well as uh, all the listeners. Thank you again. Thank you. It's time for Your Real Champions. This week, I'd like to tell you about two special people whom I call Mask Crusaders. As we all know, COVID is easily spread and led to a demand for protective masks. Well, here are two people who decided to take matters into their own hands. Mary Lozinski, a dear lady, thoughtful and giving. She loves to sew, and she also likes to learn new ideas from YouTube videos. With COVID in the news, she put her talent and her sewing machine to good use. She found a YouTube video that explained how to make masks. Each one takes at least 30 minutes to make. She cuts a 7 by 9 inch piece of fabric, adds elastic loops, irons the pleats, adds the pipe cleaner, and final stitches. She's already zipped through 25 yards of fabric, donating masks to her local hospital, family, friends, even her postal delivery woman. And she can't wait to stitch through the next 25 yards. Mary says, it's scary, but it's helping me to know I'm helping other people. My mother was the same way, and I thank God she had the patience to teach me how to sew. A man in my neighborhood has the same philosophy, but he's a little more shy about limelight. He has a more high-tech approach to helping with the cause. He bought a 3D printer and found a website with directions for making durable, water-resistant face shields. They're NIH National Institute of Health approved. Once the printer is programmed, a mask takes about 90 minutes to cut. Then each Sunday, he and his wife and two children form an assembly line and attach headband to each shield, and the final product is ready. They've even gotten other people at their kids' school to join the project by donating money for materials and helping with distribution. What a great way to bond as a family, teach children the value of community service, and actually help their kids feel a little less anxious about the threat of the pandemic. They can't see the virus, but they can see the masks that keep people safer. Visit our website, yourradiodoctor.com, with all the information, including the NIH website, to make these 3D printer face shields. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you need help with food for your family, phila.gov. Department of Health is a great resource. Hang your American flag as support for COVID patients, their families, and the workers who take care of us. And also... Send us stories about the givers in your family, workplace, and community. Send photographs and stories to info at yourradiodoctor.com. The Red Cross needs your help with blood donors. And that reminds me, if you've had COVID, you can donate your plasma with the antibodies to the Red Cross, um, Jefferson, Sacred Heart Church in Havertown. Look it up on the Red Cross website. Give blood to the Red Cross. And thank you to our exclusive sponsor, Independence Blue Cross. Wear your mask, wash your hands, stay six feet apart, and remember, your health is your wealth. Bye now. Thanks for listening to your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Krause at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program has been pre-recorded.